0: Today, we're talking about empowerment in all its entrepreneurial forms. Kareem Derhali is the ultimate example of the philosophy we celebrate here in the Bet on Yourself community. His mantra is Take charge, make change. Kareem Derhali is the founder and CEO of Investor, an award winning financial education and investment app. Investor's mission is to empower everyone to take charge of their financial future.
1: To me, the bottom line of the information revolution is the empowerment of the individual and reversing the way that information and power exists in the world. So our, you know, our belief is that we're all natural investors and that we can all learn to invest in the same way we can all learn to play a sport or a musical instrument.
0: In this episode, we explore Karim's unique international, cultural, and business perspective gained from living in Europe, the US, the Middle East, Japan, and Singapore. We also talk about how he's managed the exponential growth of Investor, which has been downloaded almost 1 million times by users in over 220 countries worldwide. The app is a portfolio management game, Fantasy Finance an education tool, the Investor Academy, and a social app of peer-to-peer learning via the Investor social community and private leagues. I met Kareem when I was judging the Go Tech Business Awards in the UK, where he was awarded the 2019 Tech Entrepreneur of the Year to add to his collection of stellar accolades. The Investor app has also won several awards as the App of the Year in 2018 and 2019. Prior to becoming a fintech entrepreneur, Kareem Derhali had a 30-year track record in the financial sector, building, growing, and managing multi-billion dollar businesses at leading financial institutions all around the world. You don't want to miss this opportunity to hear Kareem break down his nine-step model for business planning, which helped him succeed in his transition from banking to tech entrepreneurship. This stuff is gold. Kareem has an exceptional track record of building, growing, and leading high-performing teams and developing robust and scalable infrastructure. And he's going to teach you how to do the same. In this episode, we explore how he built this award-winning team through an emphasis on diversity, inclusion, and creativity, all centered around their mission to deliver empowerment and financial freedom to their users. Be sure to tune in to the very end, where Kareem also shares with us the three things that are giving him hope for the future, despite the crazy year that has been 2020. Let's get started. So I'm thrilled to welcome, as our very first guest, Kareem Derhali. Kareem, welcome to Bet On Yourself podcast.
1: Hi, Anne. It's great to be here. And I, it's, as I said to you earlier, I love the name Bet On Yourself. I mean, I think it's a theme that is so relevant to everything that's going on in the world today. So it's fantastic, really delighted to be with you.
0: You were absolutely among the very first people I thought of among um, in this theme of bet on yourself, because I think your journey as an entrepreneur is so relatable and so unique at the same time. I think you, you touch both bases. So I think there's going to be a lot of really exciting things for our listeners um, in hearing a little bit more about your story. But just as a fun like way to get to know each other, um, I'd like to ask people, what did you think you wanted to be when you were a little boy? What was your original dream?
1: Oh wow! I mean, that's interesting. You know, I tell you what, my my father wanted me to be a, a doctor because he thought that you know medicine is a skill that's universal. So if you're a doctor, you can you can help people anywhere. I mean, we we all have pretty much the same the same bodies. Uh, my mother's family were all lawyers, so she wanted me to be a lawyer. Now the problem is I I can't stand the sight of blood. I mean, I go I go weak uh, with blood if I cut myself or something like that. So I I, I would have been a terrible doctor. And I went into a law library when I was going up to check out universities and I went into a law library and I saw all these people beavering away over these thick books and I thought oh no I can't I can't possibly face that so I really disappointed both of them I you know actually I think my passion uh, when I was growing up is I probably wanted to be an international in international relations or international diplomacy or something like that and a very wise friend of my father who was a, a very senior British diplomat um, told me, look, the age of diplomacy is dead with, and this is, you know, 40 years ago with the age of telephones and modern communications, um, the age of diplomacy was dead. And so I thought about other things that I, I could do in the international sphere. And, and that led me to banking. So that was, uh, that was the real, that was the journey.
0: Amazing. I think you, like I were a very fairly serious child. I was always like very studious. I my. Well, my original thing I wanted to be when I grew up was either a ballerina or an Olympian. Didn't matter which sport, just wanted to be an Olympian in general. And then I quickly pivoted to academic, like by the age of six or so. I thought it'd be really cool to be a professor. So I think you and I were probably similar type of kids. Um, Kareem, one of the things I love most about your story is how varied your background is and how you've drawn inspiration from so many different sources and places on this earth. So to get us started, I'd love to hear... Maybe there's an influential person in your life, somebody who kind of inspired the way in which you wanted to con- contribute to the world. So maybe you can start us on that path of, of someone who has inspired you.
1: So sure. I think, you know, the the thing, the stories that inspire us, I find, are the stories of people who succeed and, you know, that we can aspire to be like them. And particularly, you know, the stories of, succeed, of people who succeed against all odds. And so The story that's probably inspired me the most is the story of a man um, who, when he was still a teenager, got a scholarship to go and study in a different country. And so he travels abroad. And while he's abroad, he loses his home. He loses not only his home, but his family, and in fact, his entire country. And so he found himself all alone, penniless and stateless, thousands of miles away from what used to be his home. And so, you know, what did he do? Um, Well, what he did is he rebuilt his life. He started again. He worked hard. He finished his studies. He borrowed money to get the train ticket to his first job interview, uh, worked hard at that, fell in love, had a family and managed eventually to give his children the most amazing education that really anyone can. And, you know, that man was my father. And he gave me a lot more than just an amazing education. He gave me a fundamental and an enduring belief in people and what people can achieve. And it's really become, you know, my mission in life to help people achieve, you know, to become the best that they can be no matter what circumstances they find themselves in.
0: An incredibly inspiring story. And I think it gives so many people hope that you don't have to come from this I think people have one idea of what an entrepreneur or what a success comes from that pipeline of what that pipeline looks like. And your family story is such a beautiful inspiration that success and inspiration and impact in the world can come from anywhere from any, any person of any origin. Um, with that, um, kind of setting for your life and your family, you then yourself have had all kinds of adventures that have taken you to living all over the world. Maybe you can walk us through some of those early inspirations and in the different parts of the globe that have informed the person that, the leader that you are now.
1: So I, I guess when I was you know really young, as a young boy, I traveled seamlessly between cultures. I went to you know, boarding school at a very, very young age. My parents were living abroad. And, you know, my own background, I come from a very a mixed ethnic, cultural, religious background. So, um, And then I was very lucky that in my personal life and my working life, I got to live in Europe, obviously in the UK, which is where my home is right now. But I've lived in the US several times. I've lived in the Middle East. I've lived in Singapore. I've lived in uh, Tokyo and Japan. And then in my working life, I've traveled, uh, I think I've calculated to over 60 countries around the world. So for me, it's just been absolutely fascinating to have that diversity of experience. And it's given me a real, <clears throat> I think, appreciation and understanding of the, of the value of diversity. Um, you know, the people that you meet in the world, the people who've got diverse backgrounds tend to be the most interesting. I mean, they, you know, they've got the different stories to tell uh, and so I've, I've just become a, a huge believer in diversity. And it's something that we, it's one of our core principles at Investor is that we like to hire, you know, diverse people. And we like to think of diversity in as broad a sense as possible. So people think, you know, typically in terms of diversity from a, a cultural agenda point of view, but I like to think of diversity also in terms of experience and skills and attitudes as well. And, you know, what I found throughout my, you know, working uh, career is that when, you've, when you bring together diverse teams, uh, it's like, I, you know, maybe the right analogy is like cooking or something. It's like having those different you know, ingredients or spices or whatever. You can create just the most amazing, amazing outcomes. So diversity has been just a really important source of inspiration. I mean, I'm lucky because I experienced it, you know, naturally, it came to me naturally, it was kind of the environment I grew up in. So for me, it's almost a given. Um, but I, and I, and as you get older, you realize just the value and the power of, of some of these things. So diversity is a, is a really important uh, element for me.
0: I think that's one of the things that attracted me to you as a leader originally. You and I met while I was a judge at the Go Tech Awards last year, and one entrepreneur of the year um, and I think that was one of the things that stood out to me in our very, very first conversation was this thread of diversity and inclusion and inspiration from all kinds of sources. The, the people you've attracted to coming into Investor really reflect your core values in a way that I find really rare and very inspirational for what a lot of companies are now waking up to during this year of the global conversations that are going on of of the the benefits and and the highlights of, of diversity and inclusion. So before I get ahead of myself into this beautiful team that you've built at Investor, I wonder if you can maybe walk us through your origin story you were a banker you did you were on wall street for 30 years you had this maybe more traditional work experience the first half of your career can you walk me through this mental shift that you had this what made you brave enough to step out of that seemingly safe environment and uh, take a chance on yourself as an entrepreneur and create something from scratch
1: i think that's the most important thing and you know i used to get lots of people would come to me for a career advice and they say, what should I do? And, and I'm unhappy and I'd say, never make a change because you're, because you're unhappy. I think it, it leads to, it, it doesn't end, it doesn't end well. You've got to be attracted by, by positive things. So, but to go back to your question, um, I, look, I, was, I was super lucky. I spent 30 years as a banker. I started in 1983 uh, at JP Morgan and ended up uh, 2012 at, at Deutsche Bank. And over that time, the, in, the financial services industry went through, I mean, just the most remarkable uh, transformation. And it was, driven, it was driven by two main trends. It was driven by deregulation and an increase in leverage. And those two things drove massive increase in activity and volumes in the growth of the hedge fund industry. It drove um, tremendous product innovation as well. And then it also drove an expansion around the world as kind of capital markets were exported around the world. I remember in 1987, I was trading French government bonds and France was an emerging market. I mean, the French capital markets were really nascent and it was considered an emerging market. And I had to persuade central banks in the UK and and other parts of Europe and Scandinavia, that it was actually safe to invest in French government bonds. So the world, and then we saw the expansion into Asia and Middle East, Latin America. So there was, it was an absolutely amazing time to be involved in financial services and I was very lucky. I think what the crisis in 2008, 2009 really brought all of those trends, not only to a halt, but actually sent them into reverse because we had re-regulation, de-leveraging, and um, you know, that product innovation kind of went out the door and was replaced by product simplicity. There was global retrenchment, people kind of came back home. So, so all of those trends stopped, but something else was something else very, very powerful was going on in the background, and that was the information revolution. And you know, we could talk about that for hours. But to me, the bottom line of the information revolution is the empowerment of the individual and reversing the way that information and power exists in the world. So, I, I was realizing that the there was this really powerful emergence of. Um, the information revolution was leading to the potential to empower people and i realized that the financial services industry the way it was being done it had become over leveraged and too remote and it had lost its way it was disconnected from its true social purpose which was really ultimately the intermediation of you know, savings savers and investors right bringing capital from people who have it to people who need it and it had become too introverted too focused on risk taking, and too remote from its social purpose. And what I realized is that we, there were three technologies that emerged as a result of the information revolution, cloud, uh, social media, and mobile. And I realized that those were the perfect set of technologies actually to remake financial services and to reconnect financial services with the common good and the common purpose, which is about empowering people to take charge of their financial future. And that was really the idea behind behind Investor, was to use this new set of technologies to enable people, to give people access and to make financial markets, in particular in the process of investing, a lot more inclusive than it had become.
0: That's one of the things that I love most about Investor is it does feel very empowering. It gives you a safe space to both learn and experiment, and it does feel very inclusive. In fact, um, at the beginning of lockdown back in March, I I had flown from Europe to the States to speak at a conference, which was canceled while I was in the air. Ended up having to do lockdown for nine weeks with my family in Seattle because Spain had since closed its border and I couldn't return home. And so my nephew, who was then 14, just now turned 15, was asking my sister, his mom, about investments. He was very curious about stock markets and, and learning. And um, I was in the car when he was asking her these questions, and I said, "Oh my gosh, William, I have the thing for you. We have Investor, and now my my 15 year old nephew and I are now playing in fantasy finance <laughs> on the Investor app. And so, if it can include me, somebody who's you know I'm 42, and my 14 year old nephew, if it can um, speak to both of us and, and train both of us, I think that's the very definition of inclusion. If the two of us are playing and learning together." Um, there's so many ways I could, we could dive into that. But I wonder if we can go into, while well, I want to really get back to the foundation of how you took this leap into entrepreneurship after a, a more traditional business model. I am curious if you can first talk about the, the why, the who and the what of investor and, and what you're really trying to solve in this very um, empowering and inclusive environment you've created.
1: So I think, you know, that there's a bit, there's a very big why. Um, and I'll start with that. And to me, you know, we face two massive problems as a society. And one is talked about a lot and the other is hardly talked about at all. And I think, you know, one is climate change and the other is financial sustainability. And my belief is that financial sustainability is as big a threat to society as environmental sustainability is to the planet. And what we've been doing for the last i mean as long as i've been working or been aware really economically aware what we've been doing as a society is borrowing and spending <clears throat> and you know we when you borrow and spend what you're doing fundamentally is stealing from the future and you're leaving the next generations to pick up the bill and um uh, and that you know that the, the worst news is that since the so-called debt crisis of 2008, 2009, which was created by excess debt in the world, what we've done is we've magnified it. So we've actually borrowed 80% more since 2008, 2009 than we'd accumulated in, in our entire civilization's history. Wow. So debt has absolutely exploded, went from about $140 trillion to I think over $250 trillion globally. This is a global, global problem and you know that's a little bit the analogy i use it's a little bit like you know telling a a, um an alcoholic sending an alcoholic to the liquor store to for a cure i mean you know you don't you don't solve a debt problem by taking on more debt and i think there's you know i describe it as almost the biggest intergenerational theft in in human history because we're saddling the millennials and the gen z with you know Uh, all of this debt that they're going to have to pay off in some shape or form. And so how do you address that problem? Well, the obvious answer is by investing. Because when you invest, you take from the present, you take from today's consumption, and you invest in the means and ways that are going to help to pay off that debt in the future. So investing is the answer to to this massive problem. And then when you look at, okay, who's meant to do the investing? Well, governments are doing the opposite, right? Governments are disinvesting and they're, they're the biggest culprits. Uh, and actually since the COVID crisis, they've been doing it even more. So, and maybe rightly, but I mean, you know, it's, it, the problem is getting you know, worse, uh, companies are the other people that you would hope would be investing in our future. And what companies have been doing for the most part, and I'm going to generalize massively here, but for the most part, what companies have been doing is they've been doing financial investing. So they've been borrowing money. And instead of investing in real capacity they 've been buying either their own shares or they've been doing m a and buying other people's shares and that adds zero productive capacity to the world so that so that just leaves us that leaves you and me and, and everyone else to do the investing and the problem so that's really the why is we, we need to increase the level of investment if we're going to have a sustainable future and society isn't going to disintegrate um, and then the problem is okay well how do we do that and and the financial industry did an amazing job for decades telling people that they were fundamentally incompetent and that they should leave the process of investing to so-called experts who, by the way, consistently underperform the markets year in, year out. But obviously, it's a very, very self-serving argument because you know, they're getting, the financial industry is still getting paid a huge amount of money to manage other people's money, you know, however unsuccessfully they're, they're doing it. And so what that has resulted in is most people are afraid of investing. They lack the confidence and the knowledge um, to become uh, investors. And so the problem that we set out to solve an investor is to give people, help people acquire the confidence and the knowledge and the wealth ultimately to become successful investors. And we think these are you know, really, really impor- important problems to solve.
0: I um... I think you've done an amazing job at addressing very, very big, complicated problems and bringing it down to the individual empowerment. Um, before we get into the details of the app, and I really want to like walk through this amazing mm-hmm. journey and, and the new features you're consistently adding and the way that you're bringing that into the individual's hands and homes. Um, I'm curious as um, coming from the banking background, how did you create the model of this company that could then do, I mean, what you've really just described is literally changing the world. So how (laughs) did you set yourself to financially change global attitudes towards finance and and economics? What was your model for business planning in creating just the, the structure of the company so that you could then accomplish this mission individually?
1: It's a great, it's a great question. Since um, I've, look, I've been very fortunate over my career, I got not only I got to build and manage several businesses. I mean, I, you know, you could, you could say I wasn't able to hold a job down, but I, I moved, I had so many different experiences, probably, you know, built and ran 15 or 20 different businesses over my career in, in different parts of the world. And going all the way back, I think to you know when I was in Tokyo in Japan in the late 1980s, I built this model and um, of how to you know write a business plan and, and run a business. And it's a model that I've used ever since, and it's worked in every single situation that I've been in. So you know, for me, for me, it's worked, and I hope it helps other people. And the model splits down really into two parts. There's the kind of the business planning piece, and then there's the execution piece. And the business planning piece has four components. One vision. You know, what is happening in the world? Uh, what are the major trends? And you know, how is the future going going to evolve? So having a view of what's going on in the world is has been my it is always my starting point. The second, uh, the second step is what I call mission. Given that that worldview, what is the role that you or your organization wants to play in in, in the world? The third step is strategy. What are the things? What are the tools, the techniques um, that you're going to put in place to create the competitive advantage or the comparative advantage to succeed and to do well in that environment? And the fourth step is objectives, because we have to be, you know, we have to hold ourselves uh, true in a sense So, what are the quantitative objectives that you want to succeed that will tell you I'm doing well or I'm doing badly against that, uh, against that mission uh, and, uh, you know, deploying the strategy. So that's the first step. The second step is how do I execute, okay? To, given, given that's my plan, then what do I need to do? And, you know, my, you know, my strong view is everything starts with clients. If you, you've got, and I, and I say that as someone who's really been on the product side of the business all my career, but I recognize that everything has to start with clients understanding who they are, who you want to reach out to, what their needs are and how you're going to reach them, how you're going to appeal to them, how you're going to reach them, how you're going to touch them. And so it all starts with clients. So defining that is really important. Then you say, you know, once you know what clients' needs are, then you can say, okay, what products and services specifically am I going to offer them? And then that's the, that's the core of your business plan. And then the, the last kind of three steps in the execution piece are, okay, If that's what I, if those are the products and services I want to offer to that set of clients, What systems do I need to have in place to be able to achieve that? What people, uh, what human resources do I need to have in place to achieve that? And then the last step is, okay, given all of that picture, what are the outcomes going to look like in terms of a pro forma uh, revenues and costs? And then that's the complete, you know, that's the complete business model. So it starts with a vision, ends up with kind of, you know, things that are very, very practical. You know, what's the bottom line going to look like?
0: I think that nine step plan that you just outlined is so helpful to a lot of people out there who might be in a more of a traditional nine to five job and have a big idea that they want to implement but don't know how to get started there you are nine easy steps to starting your own company For people who aren't yet familiar with Investor, maybe you can walk us through what exactly the product is that you ended up building to accomplish that mission that you've just described. And uh, maybe walk us through some of the big pivots that you've had along the way. If there's any theme to 2020, it's been massive pivot. Everyone has been changing, not only their life and their routines, but their business models and adapting to this new normal. So walk us through your core product and um, the way that might have changed or pivoted along the way.
1: Okay, so the essence of Investor is that we want to make it fun and social for people to learn and easy for people to learn how to invest and then to be able to actually start investing uh, in an affordable in an affordable way. So our, you know, our belief is that we're all natural investors and that we can all learn to invest in the same way we can all learn to play a sport or a musical instrument. Um, so we start off with really the game because you know, there are really two challenges when it comes to investing investing. Um, well, there's a, there's, a, there's a first challenge when it comes to investing. And the first challenge is that, that sense of lack of confidence, that fear. So if you can make it fun and exciting, then you help people overcome that fear and to build the confidence and to realize that actually the process of investing is very, very straightforward. You've got to buy something low and sell it high. And if you can do that consistently over a long period of time, you're a great investor. So we built a game called Fantasy Finance. Um, the reason that we called it fantasy finance is actually it's very similar uh, conceptually to fantasy sports. There are tens of millions of people who play fantasy sports. And if you can help people build a bridge between what they know and what they don't know, then that's, I think, a great way of helping people learn. So it's a familiar format. Fantasy finance, uh, you get to manage a million dollars of fake money. Uh, and, you, as you're, and you compete in our investor fantasy league for real cash prizes. And as you're playing the game it gives you the opportunity to experience all the thrill and the excitement of the financial markets without having to risk any real money and as you're playing you naturally learn some of the core principles the essential principles of investing that investing is about generating a return on your capital it's not just about making dollars and cents and it's about and in order to do that it helps to be diversified and not to overtrade because when you overtrade you burn the other capital which is really essential which is your emotional capital so diversification helps you preserve your financial capital not overtrading helps you preserve your emotional capital and that way you know you help to be, you know you help uh, you start to learn to become a better a better investor so the game is a great icebreaker. It's a lot of fun. People tell me it's addictive. Uh, we've had 750,000 people play the game. We get about a million trades going through the platform every every month. Um, so that's the that's the first uh, that's the first step.
0: I can confirm that it is very fun and very addictive. Uh, this is what kept my nephew and I consumed during the initial stages of lockdown, which was a very fun time to be using Investor because. There was such crazy things happening in the market, honestly, <laughs> uh, which is not indicative of the normal behavior of the stock market. So that was an interesting time for us to get started. But yeah, walk us through how you've how you've pivoted and where you see a lot of this engagement. You're getting incredible engagement at the moment. Where are most of your users coming from?
1: So we focused um, almost exclusively on North America as a core marketplace, um, but we're getting Today we're getting 100% organic acquisition, so we've done no marketing this year. So we're just—it's all word of mouth, which is which is fantastic. The other thing that's great—I mean, you know—we enable people to come together in mini communities within the larger investor family. So you know, maybe with your nephew, you've created a private league, yeah. and so we had about seventy thousand of these private leagues created. We've got you know parents and kids, uh, you know, creating private leagues. We've got college professors, MBA professors uh creating leagues with their students we've got um we've got we had a vc firm actually that was even using a private league to share ideas amongst uh, amongst themselves and yeah, yeah. um, we've got uh, we've got high school kids we've got a whole network of high school kids called cash club um, who've created private leagues so a lot of the engagement is coming socially because i think the social features that we have on the app the direct messaging you know the private leagues and the social feed that that's also uh, a big draw and then the other thing that's, you know, helping us attract people is the Academy. So the Academy is just Investor Academy. It's a It's a great place for people who really start with no knowledge, you know, we say go from kind of zero to hero. It's, uh, it's a great step by step, you know, learning, learning course. So, you know, our, our focus has been on the educational side. Um, you know, really providing people with the best environment to learn on their own in Academy to learn, you know, with from on a peer to peer basis through the social features to learn in a kind of live market environment, playing the game. And obviously it's, you know, we, we, we now want to migrate away from just purely the educational side to more the transactional side, because when I, when I think of empowerment, empowerment to me is uh, really three things. It's education, its resource and its opportunity. And the analogy I use is if I want someone to eat spaghetti bolognese, I've got to give them the recipe and the ingredients and a kitchen to cook it in. So what we've built so far is kind of the education, is the the recipe. We also provide a huge amount of data and information. And the next big part of our evolution as a business is kind of creating the kitchen or the real in kind of in financial sense, the place where people can Uh, buy and sell equities, they can buy and sell crypto, they can manage their money seamlessly. So that's the piece that's going to be coming out next is really building that last piece so that investor can be that complete journey from knowing nothing about the markets to being fully uh, empowered and in a place to manage all of your money in one secure, convenient place.
0: I think that was one of the biggest surprises to me as a new um, adopter of investor, a new user, was how much fun the education part was for me. I thought I had a fairly good understanding of the market. I've worked in Silicon Valley my entire career. This is a regular part of my daily vocabulary. But I really learned like in an in-depth way and a really addictive way. I found myself at night instead of scrolling social media, doing the academy, um, mm-hmm. and I hadn't expected that. I thought I, I thought the fantasy finance part would be the most addictive, but I, I found that true on the education side as well. Um, you mentioned, you touched on earlier that, so a lot of your adopters were originally from North America, but um, it is global. I, as an American now living in Europe, almost December will be three years that I've been living here. I've noticed a big difference in understanding or even interest in investing. For Americans, um, our parents have done it. It's, it's something offered to us as part of our benefit packages with employers. Um, but in Europe, it's um, there's less of an adoption rate. There's much more traditional investing, maybe in property or physical things that you can touch and see. I'm curious that what you're seeing in terms of your adoption outside of the U.S. And I think this education part might be um, a great starting point because my ha- my husband is Spanish. And so we're talking about our long-term investing for our future and for retirement and all of his comfort areas is within that more traditional investment space of properties and buildings and that kind of thing and i am very much into just diversifying my stock portfolio can you walk me through maybe help the two of us come to an (laughs) somewhere in the middle of an understanding of how a european might become more comfortable with this investment space
1: okay look i think you're right there are enormous differences in the way that europeans and americans uh, approach risk and risk-taking and Uh, And how that's reflected in portfolio management, and you're absolutely right. You know, portfolio selection in Europe has tended to be a lot more in terms of property and even fixed income to some extent, whereas in the U.S., there's a much stronger equity culture. Um, And I think that might, you know, if you think about America as a nation, America as a nation was built and has been, you know, managed by entrepreneurs. I mean, people who took risks to sail across the ocean, uh, for the most part. I mean, you know, that that kind of that story is changing over time. But for the most part, that's how America was built. And it's, you know, it's built on a risk taking culture um, and people who want to you know, progress and, and build and build wealth. Whereas in Europe, you know, Europe's been around a lot longer. And I think the European um, investment culture is a lot more around capital preservation uh, and kind of you know, wealth preservation you know, through families or industries or, or whatever and less about um, you know, risk taking. So there's definitely a more entrepreneurial culture. I did a series of lectures actually at a number of European and US uh, colleges, and there was just a massive difference. I mean, you, you go to an investment uh, society in, let's say, in the UK, and these are you know, student, bright students who want to learn, and they're learning because they know it's the right thing to do you go to a college in the US and, you know, the kids are all there, part of an investment club and they're already managing part of the university or the colleges and so they're they're in the markets, they got their hands dirty and the level of sophistication is so much, is so much greater. Um, and that's where, you know, we, that's where we decided to really focus on the North American market because we thought that the early adopters were going to be there. We still get, you know, a lot more, you know, a lot more. We still get about half of our audience globally. We're in 224 countries today. So we still have, you know, global participation, but 50% is uh, is North America. In terms of, you know, in terms of investment portfolios, I think, you know, we're in a really, really tough position at the moment, right? The world with interest rates effectively at zero, value's gone, right? We don't have, you know, the, if you go to capital, classical capital asset pricing theory. You look at what's the risk-free rate and then what's the risky rate that you add on top to discount future cash flows. We can't do those exercises anymore because the risk-free rate is zero and it's artificially set. When the Fed dumps literally trillions of dollars of liquidity into the system, it distorts the price of money. When the price of money is distorted, we don't have dis- properly constructed discount rates to evaluate long-term assets. And that's part of the reason, actually, why real investment, I think real investment has collapsed. It's one of the unintended consequences of quantitative easing is that we no longer invest. So trying to figure out what are the right investments in, in this environment, I think, is really, really hard. I mean, fixed thing, property, uh, property is probably going to get a little bit cheaper uh, now, given the crisis and everything else. But, um, you know, property you know, certainly has a role to play. Fixed income in Europe, fixed income rates are negative in in a lot of places. It's really hard to justify investing in fixed income. And equity markets have bounced back so strongly that it's kind of, you know, that's where the action is. And I think, you know, in a zero interest rate environment, equities are going to be the place to remain. So I think that's probably, you know, you would probably want to skew a little bit more towards the equity side than the fixed income side. But it's a really hard environment to be an investor in right now.
0: Yeah, it's so complicated. And I think that's touching people's lives in very, very real ways right now. Maybe in our old normal, we could kind of ignore markets and feel a little independent to global trends. But at the moment, that is not the case. All of us are very aware of that we're part of a cog in this very large wheel. And I really appreciate you bringing this semblance of empowerment back to people when we need it the most through Investor and What You're Building. um, I'm also intrigued by many of the principles you've just introduced that I think apply to entrepreneurship and leadership as well. Some of this, I'm curious about the two sides of your brain. You're trained in thinking, so that's the very logical, calculated side. And as an entrepreneur, you obviously have a tolerance for risk-taking, for calculated risk-taking and um, taking a chance on a big idea and kind of stepping off the ledge a little bit and doing things differently than anyone's done before. And I'm also seeing not only in in tolerance for risk in terms of investing, but as an American in Europe and in my work with my clients here, I'm also seeing a difference in the way in which European entrepreneurs face their work or investors, their different tolerance for risk in in Europe versus in the States. For you as a European entrepreneur, can you walk me through this this maybe tug of war mentally that comes as being an um, an entrepreneur in Europe, but having to step into this big risk-taking side of yourself?
1: I think um, you need to operate in two modes. You've got to have a vision. You've got to have a big vision of what's going on in the world. And you need that vision because entrepreneurship is not easy, right? There are times when we go through down moments. And if you don't have a vision, and I would say even more than a vision, if you don't have a strong purpose, it's that strong purpose that actually is going to keep you going. You've really got to believe in what you're doing because that's what's going to keep you going when, time, when times are tough. You also need that strong purpose when you're managing a team of people because I think you know, one of the most powerful things is, yes, to empower people individually and to get diverse people on board, but you want them to collaborate around that strong purpose. And if you've got a strong purpose that people believe in, it makes managing a team of people so much easier. And I think you also need a strong purpose when it comes to clients and customers, because I think increasingly these days, I think there's, a, I mean, there's, there's so much change going on in the world that I think we don't really fully appreciate, but there's also a massive generational change in terms of attitudes towards uh, companies and their role in the world and profit maximization. And, I, and I, I'm convinced that uh, millennials and Gen Z in particular want to align themselves with companies that have strong social purpose at their core. And I think the the old normal was companies profit maximize and then they give back afterwards. And I think the new normal is that companies have to give first and have to be seen to be contributing to society to gain the acceptance of the consumer base, particularly the younger consumer base. And then they can make money as a consequence of that. So I think everything really fundamentally uh, has been is being is being reversed. So you've got to have you know, you've got to have that vision. You've got to have that, that sense of purpose. And then you also need to get on with stuff, right? Because there's no there's absolutely no point having a vision and a purpose and not getting anything done. I mean, we've got you know, we, I've got a list of 100 things I need to get done. And So as some you know, you've got to in some sense compartmentalize and say, OK, enough dreaming and enough scheming and all the rest of it. And then you've just got to, you've got to get on and, and execute. Um, and you've got to be very disciplined in terms of how you do it. So I think I'm lucky. I think I, I have the ability to move between kind of the big picture and, and the detail. Um, and you know, teams need to have that ability. You need to have people who can think big and you also need to have people who can address the detail and get things done. And having that mix of skills and attitudes in the team, I think is, is really, really important.
0: I really appreciate the team that you've built. I've, I've been privileged to meet a few of your employees and see ways in which they contribute really uniquely. I would love to hear more about your philosophy as a leader in your hiring and how you identify talent. What you're building is something that hasn't existed before. And so you're really looking for people with um, the intelligence, with with a knowledge base. But I think you've also hired for this grit factor, the people who are fast learners, who can then take their knowledge base and pivot into something, a new application. And I wonder if you can also talk me through your your perspective on these millennials or Gen Zs, who are your primary users at the moment. I think that's your largest growing base and ways in which you're you're formulating uh, or maybe pivoting some of these traditional business models to fit this new market. Um, So I'd love to hear more about your team and the way in which you're using that team to anticipate the needs of this newer generation coming online
1: okay so we have we have a range of uh we have a very diverse team as you would expect uh you know we have a range of age we have a range of experience we have a range of gender i'm delighted actually outside our our development team we're i think almost 70 percent female to male which is something i'm kind of proud of i think when you look at the overall mix we're probably about 40 percent female so what we have, I mean, gender, culture, we have people in the States, we have people in Europe, we have a large development team in Istanbul. So we've got a very, very diverse team. My attitude towards the team and kind of the three values that we, that we have as a company are individual empowerment, it's uh, diversity and collaboration. And you know we really try and collaborate in a meaningful way. And what that means is people need to give up their ego. You know, there's no place for ego. Um, you know, there was uh, I was musing about the difference between collaboration and cooperation. Co-op, you know, people who have uh self-interest and whose self-interest aligns with someone else's self-interest can cooperate. People who genuinely want to collaborate need to ignore their self-interest and subjugate their self-interest to the to the higher good or the higher purpose. And so there's a fundamental difference. And so if you want to build a genuinely collaborative team, then you've got to find people not only with the right skills and talents that you need. And we need you know, tremendous diversity of talents in the digital in the, you know all the way through the stack, you know, whether it's from the design um, uh, to, the, you know, to the coding, to the project management. We need all of that, all of those digital skills. But what you really need is, that, is the right attitude. You know, people without ego, ego who are willing to collaborate, genuinely collaborate, who respect each other and genuinely willing to collaborate. And when you're able to achieve that, and it's taken us a while, and I'm absolutely thrilled with the, the team of people that we have today. I mean, it takes a while because I've, I've probably made some bad hiring, mistake, you know, you know, bad hiring decisions, and you, you've, I've brought on people who probably didn't quite fit that mold, but over time you're able to shape the team and evolve it. Um, to create this genuinely collaborative environment. And that culture, I, th- I believe, um, uh, translates into the product. And so when you go into, when you look at the reviews that we get as a product, the thing that, you know, people love the game, they love playing the game, they love the academy. We've had over 50,000 people go through the academy. But the thing they love is the community that we've built. And the, and not, and the, and that, open collaborative sense that you get when you participate in the community either in the private leagues or in the feed and we we and police is the wrong word we we actively engage ourselves in the community we probably about a third of the you know our team are actively involved and participate in the community on on a daily basis and we're trying to shape the culture and what we've tried to do is to create an environment a social environment where no one is afraid to ask a question where people actually um you know leverage the power of the community to help them people say look i've bought this what should i do with it i don't know where to start i'm stuck on this thing and it's amazing yes we try and we try and answer those questions but it's amazing how many other community uh, members now get involved and support each other and help each other so we have this you know we've created this big collaborative sense of purpose about you know you know helping everyone learn how to invest no matter what, what, you know, what stage they're, they're at. And that's what gets reflected in, in the reviews that we have. And I'm, I'm re- I mean, that's the thing I'm, I'm most proud of, really.
0: I think it comes through in such a purely authentic way, not only in your corporate culture, but it permeates the entire app and all of the products that you're building at the moment. It is very safe space, especially when it's easy to be intimidated as a, as a new investor a new user, but to walk into an environment that's so collaborative and embracing there are no stupid questions is really, really unique, especially um, in social applications these days. To, to have that safe space, to have those conversations is really striking. Um, I really, I, I, I can't say enough good things about, about what you built, really. It's, I could go on for hours and hours and i think that's something that everyone needs right now i mean 2020 has been so disheartening for so many we felt so powerless we've literally been locked down and restricted in our usual freedoms and decision makings and to have something that gives us that semblance of control again is a, a beautiful gift to be putting out into the world and i am curious for you as we're wrapping up 2020 we've got just a few months left at the time of this recording i'm curious what's giving you hope as you look into your 2021 and beyond is there, is there a theme or a project or something that's giving you some enthusiasm and hope and looking forward to the future?
1: Look, I'm an optimist uh, by nature. So I, you know, I try and see the best in what's going on in the world. But there are three things that I would say I'm genuinely excited about. And the first, the first thing is the information revolution because the information revolution is empowering people in a way that we've never been empowered before so and i think when you know the the end result of having you know billions of people empowered, genuinely empowered with access to information and access to each other and ultimately through the blockchain the ability to transact seamlessly and trustlessly you know with each other i think that's going to unleash human potential in a way that we've never been able to achieve it's kind of adam smith and the wealth of nation on steroids taken down to the individual level so that, that just gives me i think We're going to unlock human productivity in a way that's absolutely unimaginable. The second thing that gives me great hope is what's going on in the energy space. I'm not an expert on this, but you look at what's going on in the energy space, and we're getting closer to the day where we're going to have um, free, pollution-free energy. And so imagine a world in which energy is limitless, and it's free, and and it's clean. Uh, so that and we're getting closer to that. I mean, there's a lot of work that's going on in China and, and in, and in the West in terms of producing, um, you know, free energy. So I think the energy revolution, I think is something also to be, uh, to be very, very excited about. And the third thing is the health revolution. I mean, we're, you know, it's just amazing the advances that are going on in medical science and our ability to diagnose and to cure and, and to, uh, uh it's going to create a different kind of problem in the form of longevity but it's um you know but you know i think that's an incredible revolution so i look at all these three things and i'm just very very optimistic about the future i mean really optimistic about the future i think the biggest challenge that we face uh, as a civilization is to find the things that are common in us and to unite again around the things that are common and to find the values and the principles that we can all sign up to—that I think that's the thing. That if you if you ask me really, what is going, to, what what would my next project ideally be? It's that. It's if we can create that common set of beliefs and principles that unite the world and help you know take our civilization to the next level. That's something I would love to. I'd love to be able to do.
0: Incredible. I think that's such an inspiration and and thank you for giving us multiple areas in which we can place our hope for the future um, when the future at the moment seems a little dark and out of our control. I think you're right. There are some incredible advancements and they all come from this collaborative environment. When we work together for a common cause, we can change the world. It's not just a Silicon Valley cliche. We really can come together to to have some big impact and um, be a voice in the decisions being made at the moment. This has been incredible. I could talk to you for hours and hours. I imagine all of our listeners also have more questions and more things they'd love to learn from you. What's the best way for them to connect with you, to continue to learn from your ideas and to be part of the investor community?
1: So look, I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn. So please connect with me on LinkedIn. I mean, if you really want to get hold of me, then download the investor app and DM me. Uh, you know, I, there are no there are no blocks that literally anyone in the world can download Investor and send me a direct message on Investor and I, I will respond. So um, but connect with me on on LinkedIn. Uh, follow, obviously, the Investor journey on Twitter, Invest Streams on Facebook uh, and Instagram. But yeah, best thing to do is download Investor and send me a direct message and I will gladly, gladly respond. Uh, alternatively, email me Kareem Dr. Harley at Investor
0: Incredible. Thank you so much for spending this morning with us. Thank you for all the wisdom and the hope and the (laughs) inspiration for future. And for all of our listeners out there who are entrepreneurs like you who are betting on themselves right now. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and the way in which you've built this incredible company. Um, So thank you, Kareem. Thanks for your time this morning.
1: No, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands free to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.